morning. So, my name is Andy. It's a pleasure and always an honor to bring God's word to you. And this morning, we will continue from the book of Revelation. Um, before I start, let me pray. Heavenly Father, I pray, Lord, for the clarity of your word to be made known, the preaching of your word to be made known in our hearts and our lives so that, Lord, it causes us to respond, respond with gratefulness, respond with conviction, respond with repentance, Lord, as we look to your word. I pray, too, for your word to guide us, Lord, even in, in our lives as we continue to live in this present world, as we continue to endure um, sufferings and different circumstances in our lives. I pray for your word to comfort and to assure us this morning. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, um, when I was in seminary, I have a Hebrew professor who is always very encouraging in his own ways. He's very encouraging as we often struggle, as we often complain about how hard it is to, to learn Hebrew. And, and one time uh, in his class, he told us about a story of Balaam, Barak and Balaam. All right, he, uh, as a way of trying to encourage us. So, you know, we complain of how hard it is. He said that, you know what, in the story of Balaam and Barak, you know, God made a miracle. God enabled the donkey to speak Hebrew. And if God can do that, he can certainly do that in your lives too. And so, and when I thought about that, I was like, okay, I don't know if it's uh, encouraging in any way to be compared to a donkey who spoke Hebrew, but I'm, I'm sure that perhaps, you know, some of you know about this story of, of Barak and Balaam. Um, some of you know the story because of the talking donkey, but certainly there's so much more about this story than just the talking donkey. You know, to give you a little backstory of this story of, of ba Balak and, sorry, Balak and, and uh, Balaam, Barak and Balaam, sorry, I get the names confused all the time. We have to go back to Numbers 22. Now, it started out with King Balak, the king of Moab, who shown his hostility towards the Israelites. Now, if you want to read more about this on your own time, go to Numbers 22. And so at the end of 40 years, in the wilderness, as the Israelites were wandering, you know, they came near the border of Moab and Midian and camped around there. And so King Balak was afraid of the Israelites, for they have numbered in thousands and millions at that time. And he was worried. He was worried that perhaps, you know, the Israelites would decide to attack Moab. And so what he did was he summoned a prophet, Balaam, to come to him, to come to Moab, to pronounce a curse on Israel. And as Balaam was making his way to Moab, you know, three times the Lord stood in his path to stop him by sending an angel with a sword to block the way. Now the donkey that was carrying Balaam deviated each time he saw the angel. And each time Balaam would hit the donkey. It's like, why are you turning away? Why? Because he could not see the angel, Right? And finally, for the third time, after Balaam beat the donkey for deviating, God caused a miracle to happen. 
the donkey spoke, right? He said the reason he was deviating was because he was trying to save Balaam's life from the Lord. He saw an angel with a sword there. And then the Lord opened Balaam's eyes to see that there was actually an angel in front of him. And after a conversation with the angel, the angel told Balaam, now you can go to Moab, but you must only speak my words that I've given to you. And so upon arriving in Moab, Balaam spoke blessings to Israel instead of curses because God's word was in Balaam. God prevented Balaam from, from cursing the Israelites. But this wasn't the end of the story. Later on, we learned that Balaam counseled Balak to use their women to seduce the Israelites and to get them to partake in their idolatry, to commit sexual immorality. And this ploy worked. And had it not been the zeal of Phineas, the son of Aaron, the plague that came into the camp might have wiped out the entire Israelites and not just 24,000 Israelites who died on that day. And this was devastating. It brought a terrible reminder to all on that day. But unfortunately, if you think about it, the teachings of Balaam did not go away. As we see this morning in the letter of the Lord Jesus Christ to the church of Pergamon. And in this letter, we see three things. You know, as Jesus wrote to the church of Pergamon, first he said about the challenge of the church in Pergamon. He revealed the challenge that they're facing. And then secondly, he called the church of Pergamon to respond. And third, he promised the church of Pergamon with his blessings. And so let's look at these three points here. First, the challenge of the church. You know, one of the sobering thoughts about this whole, one of the sobering thoughts about this whole passage is how often Satan tries to undermine the church with, it, with his schemes and tactics so that the church would lose its effectiveness in the world. You know, we have already encountered two churches that Jesus addressed. You know, the church of Ephesus have lost their first love, their zeal for Christ. And secondly, the church in Smyrna have continued to struggle with the intensity of persecution. And now in addressing the third church, the church of of Pergamon, we see here Jesus is calling out the church of Pergamon because why? The church of Pergamon have compromised the truth. So the church of Pergamon is a compromising church. Now when it comes to the schemes and tactics, tactics of Satan, here are two themes that we often see, two means by which Satan will often try to use in the church. And the first is persecution. We know persecution is painful and scary, and sometimes it diminishes the presence of the church like we see in in Japan, or like we see in, in the Middle East, how persecution have wiped out Christians throughout generations. But then there are times too when persecution can backfire and only ended up strengthening the church 
and in some cases even grow the presence of Christianity in the country. You know, think about churches in South Korea and even perhaps in, in China and in the Middle East today. You know, not too long ago, the church in South Korea was paying a price for their worship. But now, as we see a third of the population are believers. And in China, while persecution remains rampant, we do see physical and spiritual growth happening, especially in the house churches, in the underground churches. We see Christianity thriving, in some cases, in some of the Middle Eastern countries, even though they may be small. But yet they are thriving. And so you see that sometimes persecution does not have its effect as what Satan desires. And here in Pergamon, this church was a church that was commended by Jesus for her faithfulness and perseverance in enduring persecution. So persecution didn't render the church powerless. But something else did for this church. And this brings us to a second tactic that Satan employs to the church. When persecution failed to work, Satan's other tactic is to seduce the church. This tactic is more subtle, but certainly more effective. Because it may seem like nothing on the outside, but inside it is slowly working its way in killing the church, in rendering the church useless. You know, one pastor said, Satan doesn't attack us from without, but he lulls us to sleep from within. He gets us off track and switches the real gospel with a false gospel. He tricks us into thinking that there are things that are as important as serving Christ and loving the lost. He gets us to believe that holiness is an option and that a true commitment to Christ is too radical and weird. And he seduces us as we sometimes might think that sin is not all that bad. And this was clearly the challenge of the church in Pergamon. If you know something about the church of Pergamon here in history, it reveals that Pergamon was an ancient capital of Asia, considered to be one of Asia's greatest city. And Pergamon still exists today as the Turkish city of Bergama. And in history, Pergamon was home to a 200,000-volume library that was handwritten and second only to the Library of Alexandria in Egypt. So Pergamon is a wealthy but also a very educated city. Now, by the end of the first century, Pergamon was known for its temple and worship. The city boasted temples dedicated to four different gods, four different Greek gods, you know, Athena, Asclepius, Escal- uh, Dionysus, and Z- Zeus. But overshadowing all these gods and goddesses was the city's devotion to the cult of emperor worship. So they, this is where they built the first temple to a Roman emperor in 29 BC for Caesar Augustus. If you know who Caesar Augustus is, he is the emperor during the birth of Jesus. And interestingly, the temple still exists today, and it's located in Berlin, Germany, 
after a German archaeologist took it there during World War I. So as you can imagine, Pergamon wasn't the easiest place for Christians to live in. And this is why Jesus called Pergamon the city where Satan dwells and the temple is his throne. You know, this city is hostile towards Christians and not surprisingly, persecution was rampant when Christians refused to bow down to Caesar. But like in the days of Balaam, when physical attack on Israel only made them stronger, he changed his tactics to entice God's people into idolatry. And here Satan is doing the same thing to the church in Pergamon. If persecution didn't get you, seduction may. And so Jesus rebuked the church for holding to the teachings of Balaam and the Nicolaitans. And it's likely that Jesus is referring to the same teachings for both Balaam and Nicolaitans. A Hebrew word and a Greek word both refer to the same thing. Both men conqueror and destroy of people. And both false teachings encourage people to conform to the culture and to compromise their faith by the way they, they live, to assimilation, to, to joining in, right? to eating food sacrificed to idols, to the practice of sexual immorality to idol worship. You know, William Barclay, in his commentary, wrote that the Nicolaitans sought to pursue Christians that there was nothing wrong with a prudent conformity to the world's standards. And as the teaching of Balaam was founded in the early church of Pergamon, guess what? It is also very much alive today. And our church of Pergamon is present in America. It's present in the world. It's a church that compromised their beliefs for the sake of blending in. It is a church that is too afraid on stepping on people's toes. In the name of loving people, sometimes these churches are too afraid to call out sin or to correct people. We're too afraid to talk about some of the hot buttons, some of the things that, that may offend people. We're too afraid to talk about same-sex marriage, homosexuality. We're too afraid to talk about abortion. We're too afraid to talk about racism, premarital sex, adultery. And eventually, we stop talking about anything. We don't talk about sin anymore. And we live as though as nothing is wrong with the church. Nothing is wrong with this world. And we accept it as norm. You know, it is, to me, I, I believe that this is an incredible fallacy that we have today. And this fallacy, it, it, it tells us that we can't stop, we can't love people if we call out their sin. We can't love people. We think that we can't love people if we call out their sins. Well, guess what? I teach my kids every day. I discipline my kids every day. I call them out for their sins every day. Do I not love them? And so it is an incredible fallacy to think that just because we call people out on their sin, we are labeled as bigots or, or we are labeled as someone who hates. And that is not true at all. On the contrary, you know, listen to, to what Jesus said to those who like to get along with everyone and succumb to their esteem. He said this in Luke 6, 
26. He said, Woe to you when all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. Woe to you. This is Jesus pronouncing woe to those who just want to get along, want to blend in. Now, in our time, we speak positively about hybrids, right? We, we talk about hybrid cars, hybrid work schedule, hybrid technology, how the word hybrid is it's spoken so positively because it brings out the best of both worlds. We can do both things well. But yet, we must never have a hybrid religion. We must never have a hybrid Christianity. Christianity cannot be the best of both worlds. It cannot. You know, in Christ, there is one God. There's one truth, one Savior, one King, one way of salvation, and one way to live. That's it. And Paul reminds us in Romans 12, often, as we read to Romans 12, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind that by testing you may discern what is the will of God and what is good and acceptable and perfect. Yes, you are called to live in this world. You are called to live in this world where, where the schemes of Satan, sin, temptations are prevailing, but yet you must not conform to it, but be transformed. And so as Jesus challenged the church, calls them out, he also calls them to respond. So as we look at our second point, the response of the church. You know, as you look at the pattern of Jesus' letter to the seven churches, Jesus calls out. Jesus often come in to commend them of what they do well. And then he comes in to tell them, this is what you have failed to do. This is where you have sinned. So he calls out the sin of the church. And with this calling out of sin, his intention is to invoke a response from them. And later on, he would assure them of their promise. And so at Pergamon, Jesus is rebuking the church for cultural accommodation, for they care very little about the doctrinal truth and do nothing to oppose false teachings. They have assimilated themselves well into the culture and followed the sinful patterns that led to all kinds of idolatry and sin. And as Jesus called out their sins, he also called them to respond. You see the mercy of God here? Why, why is Jesus often calling us out? It's so that we can respond to him. He's giving us an opportunity to respond to him. But what is an appropriate response to Jesus' rebuke? You know, sometimes, I don't know about you, but when I'm called out or being rebuked for my sins, there's a tendency where I try to rationalize my sin, right? Or I try to downplay my sin. Or perhaps even to justify myself so that I'm not at fault here. I don't know if you do this. I suspect we all do this. You know, we say things like, it's not that big of a deal. Or, or it's not my fault. Or, <laughs> a, a very popular one, I can't help it. I'm born this way. And the reason 
we self-justify and downplay our sin stem from our desire of not wanting to get into trouble, not wanting to bear the consequence, not wanting to suffer. But notice Jesus' command to the church in verse 16. Jesus calls the church of Pergamon to repent, admit your sins, and repent so that you can be spared from the coming judgment. You know, Jesus says, if not, if you don't repent, I will come to you soon and war, wage war against you with the sword of my mouth. Here Jesus is telling the church of Pergamon, the only appropriate response is repentance. And repentance is the remedy to get out of trouble. Repentance is the way you can avoid the consequence that is coming. And what does repentance look like? Is it simply a remorse or simply a profuse crying of your sin? You know, there's no better example of godly repentance than King David himself. And in Psalm 51, a fantastic psalm when it comes to the meaning and the idea of repentance and how it's lived out. You know, repentance isn't just showing remorse. It is so much more. In Psalm 51, David acknowledged his sin of adultery and murder by beginning with a recognition of his profound need of mercy as he said, have mercy on me, O God. Have mercy on me according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Have mercy, O God. This is how you start with repentance. You cry out to God in mercy. And then David said, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. Wash me. Cleanse me, Lord. David asked for God to remove the stain from his soul to cover his unrighteousness and to cleanse him from the sin that is now permanent in his life. And then later on, David sought the Lord for a renewal in his heart. Create in me a clean and pure heart and renew a right spirit within me. So we see in a spirit of repentance, we go before God and confess our sins, asking not only for the pardon and cleansing, but also for the strength to refrain from doing that sin anymore. And Jesus tells the Pergamon church to repent, to avoid judgment. Judgment is coming. Repent now. Turn to me. And when you look at the description of the sword of my mouth here, it brings us back to the introduction of the description of the Son of Man, which is Jesus Christ himself, in chapter 1, verse 16. His mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. So Jesus, what this means is that Jesus will return to judge the world with his word of truth. He is perfect and righteous, and he will not allow sin or unrighteousness in his presence. He will not allow sin and unrighteousness to go unpunished. He's also a jealous God and will not share his glory with others. As we see in this, in the lang this language in the Old Testament, whenever God's people dabble with foreign idols, but his jealousy is not sinful. His jealousy is like 
the jealousy of a husband who will not allow anyone to court his wife. And fittingly, this describes Jesus' relationship with the church. Now, Ephesians tells us that Jesus is like a husband to the church. He's jealous for his church. He loves his church. He cares for his church. You know, he seeks to love them so much that he's willing to sacrifice for them. So he seeks to love and care for his, his church, his wife, with his sacrificial love. And it is in this sacrificial love that we see the work of repentance comes to fruition. Now, how can we be forgiven? How can we be forgiven from our transgression when we repent? Does God magically say, okay, you're forgiven. Everything else is not counted against you now. You are okay. I don't have to, there's no need for the consequences to happen. There's no need for sins to be paid for, for wrongdoings to be satisfied. There's no need for any of that. Does Jesus just say that? That God just said that, that as a way of forgiveness, as a way when you repent to him. No. In order for, for sins to be forgiven, this is where Jesus comes in. This is where the work of repentance comes to fruition. How can we be forgiven from our transgression when we repent? How can we avoid judgment that comes for our sins? The answer is Christ. Christ absorbed the punishment for our sins through his sacrifice for us. He paid for our sins because he loved us. And so in repentance, we cast ourselves in the mercy of God. Look to Christ, who blot out our transgression, who washes away our unrighteousness through his blood. Repent, because Jesus has died for you. He's cleansed you from your sins. Repent to him. Repent so that you will not suffer from the judgment that is coming. You know, the call to repentance is appropriate for the church of Pergamon, but it is also for all of us. You know, the apostle Peter, in writing about the coming judgment of Jesus, that this will be a day when we least expect it. You know, it, it can come in a long time. It can come now. As Jesus says, one one, as Peter said, one year is like a thousand years, and one thousand years is like one year. You know, Jesus, Peter is saying that, that Jesus is coming regardless of when, but he is coming. But at the same time, don't take it for granted that we have time. Because he said later, God is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patience towards you, not wishing that any should perish but all should reach repentance. Make no mistakes, my friends, that Jesus is coming. He's coming back. He's returning to right all the wrongs, to, to destroy all the unrighteousness of this world, to judge of all our sins. Jesus is coming back, and the only way for us and the only appropriate response for us is to repent and to cling to our God.
to cling to Christ. And so Jesus is telling the church of Pergamon, repent. And he's calling us as well to repent. He's calling us to turn to him, to look to him. And finally, we see the promise to the church of Pergamon. And in calling the church to repent, Jesus also calls them to fight. Fight. The Nicolaitans have taught that there is no difference between your Christian life and the world. Therefore, live as you please. But Jesus says otherwise. He says in verse 17, He who has ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers. What does that mean? To be sure, Jesus does not mean that that we will overcome all of life's difficulties in this life or completely be free and perfect. But rather, as Richard Phillips said in his commentary, Jesus is referring to his true people who refuse to renounce him but hold fast against all persecution, who zealously uphold true doctrine while refusing heretical teaching, who embrace the Bible's call to holiness, refusing to capitulate to the immoral and self-serving standards of the world. This is the fight that Jesus calls us to embrace as believers. This is the battle that Jesus has called all of us to wage because a Christian life is not a passive life. We know what is at stake. We know there are battles happening each day in a present world full of sin. We know there are all kinds of temptations, all Vibing for our affections. But Jesus also said that we are not to fight this battle on our own. The Apostle John tells us in, in 1 John 5, 4, For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. John is reminding us that our faith, in the work of Jesus is what helps us to fight. Jesus has overcome the world, so he gives us his victory. When we fight, we fight with faith, looking to Christ at what he has done for us, not looking at our own strength, but simply turning to Christ, seeking his help, seeking his, reminding us of, of the faith that we have in him, reminding us of the victory that he has won the battle for us. He has won the war for us even as we fight our own daily battles. We live in the present reality of the already and the not yet. And so there is battle to be fought. You know, Oscar Coleman, this great theologian, has this great analogy that he used describing the already and the not yet and our need to fight. You know, he said, on D-Day, the Allied forces landed on the beaches in Normandy. Everyone on both sides knew that this was the day when it would be all decided. If the Allied allies could establish a beachhead, they would win the war. D-Day decided the outcome of World War II, but between D-Day and V-Day, which is Victory Day, when the war actually ended, 
the battles and bloodshed and suffering continue unabated. Now, Calvin added, we live between God's D-Day and God's V-Day. Jesus ultimately won the war at Calvary when he came. And the decisive battle was fought on the cross over 2,000 years ago, and at the resurrection proves that once and for all, Jesus has defeated sin and death and Satan. And Satan cannot win the war, for he lost that decisive battle for salvation of our souls. And one day, every single knee will bow to the Lord Jesus. The kingdom of this world will become the kingdoms of our world, of God. And our Lord will reign forever and ever. So we live between the V-Day, the D-Day and V-Day in our world, and we continue to fight. There are still battles going on, knowing that ultimately the war has been won by Christ. And to all who conquer through faith, to all who continue to fight and to conquer through faith, Jesus promised three blessings to the church. First, he gives them a hidden manna. You know, remember, manna was, was what God gave the Israelites to eat when they were wandering in the wilderness. Moses and Aaron took some of the manna and put it in the jar later on and hid it in the ark as a reminder of God's providence. And yet the, the Israelites eventually fell into the trickery of Balaam and ate meat sacrificed to idols instead. They rejected God's providence of, of, and substituted a true manna for a false manna. And we see the concept of true manna of heaven was ultimately fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Now God wasn't only the provider, he was also the sustainer. When a crowd came to Jesus to ask for a sign so that they may believe him, Jesus said in John 6, you know, our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness as it is written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. And then Jesus says to them, truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Then the crowd said to, to Jesus, sir, Give us this bread always. And Jesus says to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. So Jesus is the picture of the hidden manna, for he is hidden from us right now in heaven, but for believers, he sustains us daily through his spirit. His spirit is present in us. He, he, his spirit gives us sustenance, life, and power every day. Jesus is the manner, it's the promised blessing that God has given to us. And when we go to be with him, he will no longer be hidden from us, but instead he will be present with us and join the heavenly feast he provides for us. And second, Jesus also provides a white stone for the conquerors. Now, in the Roman culture, a white stone is given to a winning athlete, which conveys honor. And Christians who persevere till the end, who have run the race and persevere till the end, will receive honor and glory from the Lord. 
But there's more to this. You know, a white stone with a name written on it signifies a token of admission to a banquet. And imagine going to a, an exclusive dinner party. You know, as you walk into this expensive venue and as you approach at the entrance for your admission ticket, you are not worried because you have it. No, you have it because the Lord has provided it for you. You can walk into this banquet, this venue, and dine with the Lord. This is his token of admission for you, this white stone with a name written on it. And third, Jesus also promised a new name written on the stone so that, that no one knows except for the one who receives it. Now, there's been speculation of what this new name is, but I think in reading Revelation consistently, we can understand that this new name is likely the name of Christ. Now, Philippians 2, 9 to 11 tells us that at the, name, at the end, at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord. And then also in Revelation 14, speaks of, of the redeemed as having Christ's name written on their foreheads. And so we see that this white stone has the seal of Jesus because his name is written on it. And this makes the invitation legit and authentic. It comes from Christ himself. So you see what a tremendous blessing it is for, from Jesus who has given us his invitation with his seal on it so that we can enter into his presence. And not only that, he is there to prepare this meal for us to, so that we can dine with him. And this is the promise of Jesus to the church of Pergamon, but it's also a promise to all of us as believers. You know, Jesus knows the challenge we face daily in this hostile world. He calls us to live with courage and faithfulness despite of the circumstances we are in. And when we stumble, which we will, he calls us to look to him in repentance because he's merciful and gracious. And he also calls us to continue to seek out the promised manna, which is Christ, that has been provided for us to strengthen us in our journey. And finally, he welcomes us with an open arm when we finish our race on this earth. He welcomes us to dine with him invitation has his name written on it for us as he welcomes us to feast let's pray humbly father I, I thank you for your word I thank you for the church of Pergamon for the writing for the letter to this church for it reminded us so much of even our own present circumstance in this world Lord, we know that, that life is difficult. We know that temptations are around us. We know that struggles are around us. We know that we live daily in need of your grace and your mercy. But thankfully, Lord, you have provided us Jesus who lives in us, who's there to guide us, who's there to comfort us, who's there to lead us on, who's there to, to sustain us, who's there to strengthen us daily and I pray that you cause us to look to him to know what he has done for us how he has accomplished his victory for us 
And so even in our own struggles with temptation daily, in our own struggles with, with the culture that we live in daily, help us, Lord, to, to seek wisdom and what it means to live as followers in our world. Help us to live and be transformed by the renewal of your heart. Help us not to conform, Lord, to the patterns of this world, but continuously be transformed. At the same time, Lord, help us to love others by pointing them to Christ. So I thank you and I praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.